today on Ag News Daily. With the both advantages in of a quadcopter and a fixed wing, so where we actually go up vertically, transition to horizontal flight, and we can go up and we can capture 10 acres per minute. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson and Delaney Howell here on second day, day two of our Ag News Daily Road Trip. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a better name. We do. We need to be more creative. Yeah. We're not there yet. That's not really your strong suit. I'm super creative. Mm. I'm like Picasso of creativity. Nah, I think that's I'm debatable. like the Neil Armstrong of creativity. Neil Armstrong, like the astronaut? Yeah, yeah land, landed on the moon. The moon is my creativity, and I, I, I step on its face. Okay. Good that's job. creative. Sure. Anyhow, so mm-hmm. Delaney, you're here, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. for whatever that's worth. What's going on? Well, we've had a good conversation this morning. We got to talk to T- Keith Alverson. Yes, that was a lot of fun. He has. He, we're going to play him probably Thursday of this week. An interesting row crop farmer just outside, about 30 minutes outside of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, this does a lot of interesting things, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, carbon sequestration, yes. ridge till, stuff that, you know, I I haven't seen ridge till done in years and years and years. Bill Northey was a, an mm-hmm. avid ridge tiller for quite a few years. I was a former Secretary of Agriculture, um, and, and they're still doing it, and they're charting the benefits that multi-year corn actually has on soil structure, which is very cool. It's great news to have, uh, tools to have in corn growers' back pockets. But mm-hmm. today, we talked to Keith. We saw a lot of uh, one of America's most boring interstates, which is Interstate 90 through southern yeah, Minnesota. But, the, but it's just so pretty at well, the same I mean, time. It's beautiful ground. It's obviously great soil. You're coming through hog country up there. You can tell the manure's been working. The crops look really, really excellent. Mm-hmm. Ted Seifert and Matt Zaner are currently out in a cornfield doing a couple yield checks. We're here in Blue Earth County, Minnesota. Um, but it, it's very flat. And it's very straight as an interstate. It's, it is. it's like I-29. Yeah. It's very dull. It is. But we're going to see a couple more growers yet today. We have dinner in Clear Lake tonight. So if you're around Clear Lake, Iowa, probably at 6 or 7 or so. Probably 7. Yeah. Later is always better, it seems yeah. like, for us on this trip. Uh, hit us up. We're going to be in Clear Lake. Find us on Twitter at Ag News Daily or on Facebook at Ag News Daily as well. And uh, let us know. We'd love to talk to you. And I'm sure Matt Zaner will buy your dinner. Yeah. You like promoting that, don't you? I do. He's going to buy my dinner, whether he knows it or not. <laughs> Surprise. Sorry, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I have free meals. My favorite meal. But what's the news today, Delaney? I'm going to kick it off here with a statement that Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue made in Congress the other day. He usually doesn't really voice his opinion or support or, or disagreement about things very often. And he's made a couple of statements about, really, immigration and immigration bill he is encouraging Congress to pass an immigration bill presented originally by Bob Goodlett back in October, I believe, of last year that would overhaul the current H-2A agricultural guest worker program. And in turn, it would change to an H-2C visa program, which would expand it to include both seasonal and year-round labor needs. Growers usually on the western side of the United States are typically not in favor of this type of visa. Oh, interesting. They um, like so the... The shorter-term yes. workers. Okay. So it does create a little bit of controversy, but Secretary Purdue says, you know, at the end of the day, we need to have a, a good worker program in place, and he believes this is the one that should be should be moved forward with. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully his words will maybe give some Congress folk uh, 
confidence to maybe maybe, maybe. do something. You know, speaking of confidence, we've uh, seen a lot of confidence shaken in China's ability to handle disease outbreaks with African swine fever yes. sweeping through the hog herd. Well, the American pork producers aren't going to take this sitting down. NPPC, National Pork Producers Council, got together last week, hosted a meeting with the American Association of Swine Vets, the National Pork Board, the Swine Health Information Center, SHIC, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, including Chief Vet Officer Jack Shear, and they discussed, okay, what are we going to do about mm. this? Because I was having a conversation with a couple pork producers, and yeah, we don't import pork from China. That's not an issue. We're not going to get it that way. But almost all of our, uh, I want to say micronutrients, our, our amino acids and our minerals that we add to our feed comes from China. And this disease can be spread through tainted feed. So how are we going to find another source for those minerals? How are we going to guarantee that they're safe? And glad to see they're working on it, Delaney. I think so too, Mike. It is a good thing to see that they're working on it. Um, as we look at other news today, we've got a little bit of explanation, I guess you could say, from USDA Chief Economist Robert Johansson, who sat down with the National Wheat Growers Association and the U.S. Wheat Associates on Friday to talk about how Basically, they formulated the direct payments for commodities and specifically wheat. How'd they do it? What's the secret? So, basically what they did, they determined how many bushels of wheat wouldn't be exported due to the tariffs. Okay. How'd then they do they that? Then they multiply... I don't know. Cough, cough, made up a number. Cough, yeah. cough, cough. Okay, cough. then okay. they multiplied that by the average price of all six wheat classes Okay. for a total of $240 million in lost exports. Okay. That figure was then divided by actual wheat production in 2017 and then divided in half because it's a 50% payment here for the first one. Mm -hmm. um, and then that model apparently resulted in the 14 cents per bushel payment that wheat growers would receive or $119 million. Okay. So I mean, we kind of have the formula, but the right. big question is how do you get the number of bushels yeah. not exported? Do you look at, yeah. do they figure out an average of past exports and then look, assume yeah, exactly. a drop? Well, you know. So I, I guess they're, they're making progress. They're making an effort to be so, transparent. I guess they said, so, yeah, it's a little confusing here. Um, but No, not in a government <laughs> program. Goal or Gooley, I'm not... 100% sure how to... He's the CEO for the National Association of Wheat Growers. He said that he was skeptical about how USDA was assuming, of course, the amount of wheat bought. Um, but basically, China normally submits its requests for wheat between March and June of okay. every year. So, so far this year, so far this year, no wheat, no U.S. wheat has been exported to the country. So I guess maybe that's in part and partial how they calculated that Yeah, number. look at last year's orders and then just subtract right. it. That could be... But it, it would be nice if they told us that. Right. That would eliminate this speculation. The other piece of this that also came out is kind of the breakdown of who gets the assistance money. Mm. So critics of the current assistance package have pointed out that farmers in Midwestern states like Iowa and Indiana, which were big Donald Trump supporters, are receiving the bulk of the initial <gasps> 4.7. No! No! Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm so shocked! So the biggest winners were farmers in Illinois. Mm -hmm. um, they are receiving an estimated $597 million. Iowa farmers are projected to receive $578 million. And, mm -hmm. of course, those are the two countries' biggest 
corn and soybean growers. So yeah. that makes sense to me. And I don't think Illinois was a Trump voting state. I'm pretty nope, sure they Hillary went Clinton blue. State. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. So yeah. It seems as though critics are are reaching at straws right. there. Any money that major majorly goes to rural yeah. America is going to go to Trump supporters via well, this last right. election. So the other top three states, including Iowa, Illinois, are Minnesota, Indiana, and Nebraska. And then the other top ten states are projected to receive about a hundred million dollars each or total. Total. Oh wow. So so Minnesota is getting three hundred and sixty. Okay. Indiana is getting about three hundred and twelve, and Nebraska is getting about three hundred and six. So those top five states—Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Indiana, and Nebraska—are getting about forty-five percent of the first annual tranche. Which would which is annual? That you're assuming that it's going to come again. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said annual. Yeah. yeah. Although I think you're probably right. Um, okay, but Wisconsin isn't in the top five. I'm surprised I, with support for dairy. Ten, I would guess. Yeah, that. I bet you're right. Well, we've got some news here coming out of the southeast. Hurricane Florence is now a Category Four hurricane. Yes. She is projected to hit the coast of North Carolina, and so far, a million people have been evacuated. And we got to remember, North Carolina. Tremendous poultry producer, mm-hmm. tremendous pork producer, and uh, some cotton and tobacco, tobacco grown. So these things are definitely going to be impacted. We don't know to what extent yet. The storm could still shift. We've got a couple of days. It is right now 845 miles southeast of Cape Fear, North Carolina. Um, so we'll, we'll track it. We'll see where it goes, but those aren't, uh, small players in no. the world of American agriculture, North, no. South Carolina, and Virginia, which is where it's projected yeah. to hit. It would, it'll be interesting to see how the markets react once those do hit. Yeah, yeah. Most severe hurricane to threaten the U.S. mainland this year. Mm. Hurricane Florence. All right. Well, in other water-related news, Mike, we've got a little bit of not welcome and not exciting WOTUS-related news. Ugh. Yeah, we've, we were kind of talking about this earlier. It looks like the Trump administration is not going to repeal the Obama-era WOTUS rule without with any help from Congress. So the way we understand it, and we might be wrong, so listeners, please correct us if yeah. we are, the House and Senate negotiators didn't allocate any funding in the 2019 fiscal bill that would allow the Army Corps of Engineers to repeal the WOTUS provision because, Mike, as you understand it and we're explaining it to uh. me, basically you have to allocate funds so people work on that to repeal the measure, and that's we're thinking so maybe that's, that's not my happening. guess. That's my guess is the U.S. government is the only thing that would need money to stop doing a mm-hmm. thing. You know, that's the, the, I can't imagine any other place that would go, hey, other than the mafia, would say, hey, pay me to stop doing this thing. But I believe that in order for the Army Corps to make the work required to repeal WOTUS, they would have to assign employees to that job. It would require funding, and that's what Congress didn't provide mm-hmm. in this bill. Is the funding to right. it's not, stop it's not doing that? Right, yet, but right. Okay. that's the way it's looking right now. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, now so uh, Woda, stay in the news. Yeah. Well, hey EPA, I just peed in the road ditch. What are you going to do about it? Is it a corn growing state? Well, it's yeah, under Wotus, it certainly would, and that was a direct sewage discharge that I made right into Good it. Good job. Thank yeah, you think. come and get me, EPA. <laughs> I will take a stand here. Don't tread on me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we've got news here. We talked yesterday about the U.S. putting tariffs on every single dollar of goods we import from China, and we were speculating, hey, what's China going to do? You know, they can't put that many tariffs on goods that they buy from us. 
Well, China told the World Trade Organization today that it is planning to impose $7 billion a year in sanctions on the U.S. through the World Trade Organization. So, so far, this trade war has been outside the WTO. It has been between the United States and China. It's been based on Section 232, the national security prerogative in the trade law. But now China is bringing it into the World Trade Organization. These... Uh, Sanctions could come as all sorts of different things. They could come as long-running tariff barriers approved by the WTO. Basically, we could end the trade war tomorrow, or in a year, let's say, and China's got seven years now sanctioned through the World Trade Organization to keep tariffs on. And there's nothing we can do about it except slap tariffs on them again and then fight it out through the WTO again. That would be uh, great if that happened then. No, it doesn't sound like it's a bullish factor. We did see beans down 13 cents today. I I don't know how connected these two things are, but the fact that China is going to the WTO says this trade war is going to take a while. Mm. Well, we've got some news here finally. The beef industry really hasn't been hit yet by these tariffs tit for tats, but it looks like this might be a possibility that I know the beef industry might be getting hit. So, I mean, the thing is, though, that we weren't exporting that much beef to China in the first place, but it sounds like Brazil is forecast to produce 10.2 million metric tons of beef next year, which is a 3% increase, and it's expected to mostly be shipped to China. Yeah. And China lifted its ban last year, of course, on U.S. beef, but we really haven't seen a lot of market expansion since then. But Brazil is now forecast to export 2.125 million tons of beef in 2019, which is a new record and up from 2.025 million tons that they exported or are expected to export in, in this year, 2018. Okay. Well, you yeah, know, not shocking. Brazilian beef tends mm-hmm. to be a little bit cheaper than U.S. beef, so China would probably buy. Per- primarily Brazilian beef anyway, right. but yeah. As long as we can keep Japan and South Korea cooking, yeah. beef demand will stay, stay fairly steady. Hopefully, and we'll, that's the... We'll yeah. chew through this supply. Right. Yeah. So I've got just one other piece of news here. It's kind of my fun fact of the day. Okay. Delaney, you and I are big chocolate fans. Oh, we just yes. ate a gigantic Kit Kat, a gigantic Butterfinger, and we're currently munching on... I haven't ate my Butterfingers yet. Oh, well, I did. Okay. Because I'm an American and I get uh. things done, Delaney. Um, but... We do have news that Cadbury owner Mondelez Foods, Mondelez International, is stockpiling ingredients in Britain to continue making chocolate in case the Brexit deal goes south. They're worried that all of a sudden they could see additional tariffs put on to various ingredients they import from the EU, Mm -hmm. and they want to be prepared. So they've got three months, or they're planning to stockpile three months' worth of ingredients. So British listeners, you will have Cadbury chocolate even if Brexit goes south. Okay. They're going to take care of you. I'm going to Ireland next week, so... There you go. There you go. You'll be able to... uh, uh, Yeah. Whatever happens with Theresa May and Brexit, you're going to have Cadbury chocolates. Perfect. All right. Well, Mike, I do not have any other news, so why don't we hop over into the market? Let's do it. Before we get to our Tech Tuesday talking drones with AeroVironment, let's see what happened. We've got red on the screen all down the board today, starting in the corn market. September corn down a quarter penny at 355 and a quarter. December down a half at 366 and three quarters. 
Soybeans, as I mentioned, big down day. The SEP downs 13 and a quarter cents at 8.20 and a quarter. November down 13 and a half cents, closed at 8.31 and three quarters. We'd also took it on the chin with the September down 10 and a quarter at 4.93 and three quarters. December down nine and a half to finish at 5.18 and three quarters. Jumping over to the livestock side of the ledger, we've got beef demand cooking right along, but we're not seeing that always reflected in the markets. In live cattle, the October contract down 85 cents at 109.30, with the December down 50 to close at 113.92 and a half. In feeders, September down 40 cents to close at 152.12.50. The October down 22 and a half to finish at 152.45. Looking at lean hogs, the October contract dropped a dollar 47 and a half, finished at 54. 47.50 with the December down $1.60 at 54.10. And of course, a quick look at the dairy market here today. We've got class three milk, the September contract down 11 cents at 16.15 and the October down 32 to close the day at 16.30. And as I mentioned earlier, we are out with market sponsor this week, Ted Seifert and Matt Zaner from Zaner Ag Hedge. We couldn't be doing this without their support. If you're around Clear Lake or Dubuque tonight and tomorrow night, let us know. We'd love to introduce you to these guys they are great folks but we are going to be talking with matt strine from quantix about drones and their use in agriculture it's a fun conversation delaney let's kick it right over well, well folks on today's tech tuesday episode we are talking to matt strine and matt is the head of aerovironment director of business development for our cis division that's what I was going to say. That was that was my next guess. And uh, but Aerovironment, you're here at the Farm Progress Show. You're showing off the Quantex drone. Now we've seen a lot of drone companies come out in the last five years. The hot technology. It's very cool. It's been big in ag. You guys are a little different. You've been around a day or two. Give us the history of of, uh, of you guys. Yeah. So exciting about us is that we've been developing drones for the last thirty plus years. I mean, arguably we're the inventor of the hand launched drone. So we're definitely in this space to stay. Uh, millions of hours of flight time that we're able to transition into this new product, the Quantix that you talked about, is that we're able to take all those hours and make sure that we develop a purpose built tool for agriculture. 30 years is a long time for drones, and it feels like in agriculture, especially maybe the last five to seven years, is really when it's become kind of a hot topic, a hot thing to have. Why did the drone industry take so long to, to develop in agriculture? You know, that's uh, precision agriculture as one is what stood this up, and there's actionable tools that take place in precision agriculture, and drone technology is just the next step in precision agriculture, which I like to say is decision agriculture, so it kind of changes the way that we go, but that's what it's taken is for that precision agricultural aspect, being like application control, to be able to be there before you can start taking aerial imagery and making sure that it helps you make those decisions that we need. The other uh, noticeable difference between Quantex drone and some of the other drones that we've seen in the industry, we've talked to a lot of drone companies on, on the podcast, and so it's like, okay, well, what's different about Quantex? The model itself, and we're going to post a picture to our Facebook and Twitter, which you can find at Ag News Daily, the model of this drone is very different from ones we see used primarily in agriculture. Walk us through the reasoning behind that. Yeah, definitely. We, what we did is we made a, a hybrid design where we took the advantages and disadvantages of both aircrafts kind of threw out all the disadvantages put the both advantages in of a quadcopter and a fixed wing so where we actually go up vertically 
transition to horizontal flight, and we can go out and we can capture 10 acres per minute, which equals about 400 acres in our 40-minute flight time. And then when it's done capturing the very perishable information that we're out there collecting, it'll come back in and it'll land. How it lands is it transitions back to vertical and lands safely, so it's saving or protecting that uh, very precious sensors that are on board. And that's the thing. When we talk about the drone technology, putting it to use for agriculture, the big part is the sensors. You can get all sorts of cool stuff up into the air, but it's what you can get off the ground into that device that matters. Talk to us a little bit about what you guys have in the Quantex drone. What kind of sensors are you working with? What kind of data is the farmer getting off the back end? Yeah, great question. We actually have two sensors on board. We have an NIR sensor, which gives you your NDVI indices, which we look at for, like, the health of a plant. It gives you that uh, reflectance. And then we have a RGB sensor, which is a red, green, blue, very commonly known as just an, uh, a picture of the field, which we're taking lots of pictures and we stitch them all together. The exciting part about this is, is what we get back or what we give back to the grower in the form of an ROI is, we help them verify the applications that are taking it in there. And it has to be in conjunction with both of those sensors. So we're flying it in one flight instead of two, which is very unique to the industry. Is that we're able to capture that, save time, be able to get that back, that in-season data, so that they can make informed decisions. Let's talk a little bit more about some of that data they're collecting because that's a thing we hear from a lot of producers is, oh, I'm collecting all this data, but I don't know what it means and I don't know what to do with it. How are you working through those solutions with growers? Yeah, it has been an industry problem. I mean, there's an extreme amount of different forms of data, as applied planter map data, yield data. I mean, it just keeps piling up, piling up, piling up. Well, the one exciting thing about it is we have in-season data, which is the growth of the plant. So it's a different form of data. So like a planter data, it's at that moment in time when you plant it. You know, yield monitor, it's at that point in time. A uh, drone data, you can actually visualize that data during that growing uh, phase of that plant, like the vegetative phase, or when you do a certain application, you can fly pre-application and then post-application, and then you can now start to make informed decisions off of that data. As an example, it is just a visual reference that you can see, you can identify an anomaly. We're not in a scout in the sky, but we look at it very objectively, and we see the reflectance of that plant, and we say, hey, that's a healthy spot. This is a not healthy spot. We like to call it an anomaly. You go out there and you inspect that anomaly, you make a decision of what was creating that anomaly, and then the cool part about it is you have an anomaly layer that's in our DSS that allows you to now create a variable rate map that you can, imp you can import into an application tool and then go apply that variable rate. Now, that all sounds really cool. I don't know what a DSS is. What's a DSS? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, thank you very much for that. that. Our decision support system, it's our cloud-based data analytic tool. So that's kind of like your, your toolbox, if you will. And then there's tools inside that that help you make those informed decisions. Excellent. Now that leads right into my next question. We're here at the Farm Progress Show. You've got a great booth. You've got a couple TV screens showing different, different things, the drone flying. And then over here, I see you've got a TV screen with some of the different layers on it. We're looking at the data. We've got a field for those listeners who... Uh, obviously aren't here we're looking at half a section or at least uh at least half a half a circle here of irrigated ground we're seeing different reds and yellows and greens we're seeing uh, a couple of whites we're seeing different layers come and go i go out i fly my quantix drone i get it back i'm a farmer i'm not a tech guy what's it take for me to get the data off the drone 
into the computer, into the DSS, and to get these pretty looking maps. How much time and how much intellectual capacity is required? You know, it's funny that you say that. Is what we really did is we sat back and we wanted to make sure that we focus on that user experience. So no matter what the technology curve of the individual is, they can operate this. Literally, it's very intuitive. Within two to five minutes, an individual can have it up and flying. So let's talk all the way through that from start to stop. Two to five minutes, up and flying. We capture 10 acres per minute. So if you are going out there with that 80-acre field that you were just referencing, it would take right about 10 minutes to fly. The second that it comes back, it because we're collecting very perishable information. It transfers that to our GCS, our ground control station. And then you can visually see that, hey, there's an area that I would like to investigate. It's at a little bit lower resolution, but it's still, it's very noticeable that you can see that. While I'm standing in the field, or while outside the field, I can get this in my hand. With less than a minute from the aircraft to the GCS, it Bluetooths it over there so you can see that perishable information. We can identify that spot, and then we say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go ground truth that. So let's not calculate that in there. So after the fact, we want to go ahead and upload that 80-acre field, depending upon whatever your broadband uh, speed is, depending on how long it will be. Under 24 hours, we'll have back the fully processed high-resolution data, which is one-inch GSD, ground sampling distance. So we get the very, very high accuracy of that plant to where we can see down to the row level and make those informed decisions in season. And those informed decisions, that's not part of of the Quantex solutions. That's something that growers are then taking to their seed salesmen, their agronomists, and asking them questions and and in-application usages or problems. Yeah, great point. What we're doing is we're pointing out the areas that an individual needs to go investigate and uncover what is taking place, what is impacting that plant, and showing the differences to it. As an example, you know, a lot of people will talk about nitrogen deficiency. Let's just say that we identify that we have this winter wheat that's that's taking place and we have a nitrogen deficiency. And I can see the, the picture that you were referencing earlier that showed those different colors. I can now export from my decision support system. I can export that shape file, import it into a farm management system, put it into my application and go out and variable rate that nitrogen to that field. So actually the field that you were referencing there is a pretty amazing one. It was, you could not see those differences from the ground, but what it is is actually the individual had the wrong sprinkler package on it, so it wasn't getting a very uniform emergence of water, and it was showing up in the plants. And we end up figuring out that you end up losing about 12 bushel to the acre because of that. But you caught it. That's something he probably wouldn't have caught. He'd run his combine through it. He'd seen some variability, but he wouldn't have noticed that it was the issue until, you know, maybe next year, maybe not. But he was able to catch it. Now, that's a pretty self-explanatory payback from a, a purchase the drone perspective because these aren't free. You know, they're, they're, they're an investment. How are growers making the money back? How are they able to justify this kind of an investment in their operation? Yeah, you know, I mean, and everybody wants to get down to the ROI. I always say that, hey, the ROI is in the verification of whatever application you're doing. And what I mean by that is if I set a 200-bushel yield goal and I go out and I fly it and I see that my plant is not doing well in this area and I can go out there and I see that, hey, this is a nitrogen deficiency and I want it to stop declining my yield, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to put that uh, application of nitrogen on it. I'm going to stabilize my plant and hopefully capture my yield back. I might not get back to my 200 bushel, but I'm going to certainly keep it from decreasing. That's one example. Another one, you know, just like a fungicide. We always question whether a fungicide did or didn't work. But we always have to wait till yield. 
with the, with the aerial imagery with that type of accuracy, one inch GSD, is that we're able to see immediately what the response was to that plan. So again, if it didn't work, you know that it wasn't some other variable that took place. So I mean, that's really where the ROI comes into play. Well, I have to ask, since we're talking about ROI, what does the cost of one of these Quantix drones run? Well, interesting enough is we are a full ecosystem. So, I mean, that is the drone itself, the ground control station, the data analytics tool, and obviously the service behind it. Uh, that whole package is $16,500. And then the follow-on years is 3000 annually. One really cool part is we have a money-back guarantee. If an individual buys it from us, they have it for 30 days, fly it a couple times, not satisfied with it. We're so confident in our product, we'll give you your money back. And Now, you have had this drone out. This is really the first growing season, and it's been out commercial. Folks are trying it. What have you heard? Uh, or, or I guess I should ask. Folks are worried about jumping into new technology, thinking the next version is going to be so much better. What are you guys looking at in the future, and is it worth it jumping on board the train now? Yeah, you know, technology, I always everybody asks me, hey, when's this technology curve going to stop? And I've had the privilege of being in a precision ag for a long time, and I can say to, to people, luckily for you, it's not going to stop. Every time that we have this new innovation that comes out, that means it's doing one step further for us, and it gets us down that path to making us what our main goal is, is focused on timing and efficiencies. So I hope that we continue to come up with something new. The exciting thing is, is with an imager itself, a lot of it is just software upgradable, and this system is so easy to upgrade. Literally, there's an SD card that's inside the system. You plug it in, walk away from it, and it does its thing in about three minutes. That's pretty awesome. Last question for you. Where can folks find out more about Quantix if they have questions? Yeah, they can visit our website, which is avdroneanalytics.com or quantix.ag. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to Matt Strina. We're going to post a picture of that on Twitter and on Facebook if you want to see what it looks like. It's just really cool because most drones are the five copter or four copters. They look like spiders or whatever. They start, they fly up. But this one, it looks like a rocket ship, and it flies up, and it lands straight up and down parallel. It's yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, it's pretty different. But, folks, stay tuned. Tomorrow we'll be playing a little bit more of our conversations with growers out here on the tour. We would love to talk to you, so reach out to us. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ag News Daily, or you can always find us on the website at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.